I should say a word first about the series of which this book event is part. Regularly, the center hosts events on new faculty books. Uh, much of the work we do as scholars and the energy and time we put into the production and writing of our books is necessarily work that we do alone in our offices, research off campus, and we rub shoulders with each other, but we often don't know about our own work. And so one of the ideals of this series is to try to have a series of events that open up to the community in some way uh, a book by an author on the faculty, a chance to talk about the book, to discuss it, the issues related to it. And this uh, event tonight is part of a series. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Mark Jordan had a new book on Foucault and religion, Convulsing Bodies. And we had a very interesting discussion of that book with several discussants. Um, <coughs> on April 14th, Kevin Madigan's book, Medieval Christianity and New History. And then my much postponed uh, discussion of my own book on um, his Hiding Places Darkness, Comparative Mystical Study of Hinduism and Christianity from February has been postponed until April 20th. And then we already have several possibilities for book events in the fall. And the, the, the nature of the discussion is um, for the author to talk about the book that he or she wrote, uh, some of the scholarly you know, detail and responsibilities of it, but also um, for the sake of our audience, why did you write that book? How did you come up with that idea? How does it relate to things that you've done previously? And then two or three discussants, depending on the occasion, to talk about um, the book from different angles. The discussants are not required to cover the book thoroughly, but points of interest, uh, points they want to highlight, and sometimes points of controversy, like let me push you on this, or let me ask you questions about that. So I think uh, an interesting conversation develops around each book that we have. And tonight we have a very interesting book. I'll, um, once I stop talking, I'll pass it around in case anyone hasn't had the chance to see it yet. The Awakening of Muslim Democracy, Religion, Modernity, and the State by Jocelyn Cesari. And let me introduce Jocelyn briefly. Jocelyn Cesari is a professor and senior fellow at Georgetown University at the Berkeley Center where she directs the Islam and World Politics program. She's also a lecturer in Islamic studies here at Harvard Divinity School. And she is a research associate of the Awalid Islamic Studies program in Arts and Sciences. Uh, she teaches a, a range of courses on contemporary Islam here at the Divinity School and also directs the Harvard interfaculty program, Islam in the West, which is hosted at the Awalid Islamic Studies program. So although uh, Jocelyn is based in, more or less at Georgetown, the Berkeley Center, she has incredible energy and generosity in her teaching and her work at Harvard University. There must be two of you in there somewhere <laughs> to go back and forth so much between campuses. Uh, she also coordinates several major web resources on Islam and politics, uh, particularly Islamopedia online. You can look it up. Her work focuses, obviously, from what I just said, on Islam and globalization, Islam and secularism, immigration, and religious pluralism. Her 2006 book, When Islam and Democracy Meet, Muslims in Europe and in the United States, is now a more or less standard reference work in the study of European Islam the integration of Muslim minorities in secular democracies. In 2013, she published a book, Why the West Fears Islam, an Exploration of Islam in Western Liberal Democracies. 2014, 
almost a book a year here, <laughs> The Islamic Awakening, Religion, Democracy, and Modernity from Cambridge University Press, based on research on state Islam relations in Egypt, Turkey, Iraq, Pakistan, Tunisia, when she was the Minerva Chair at the National War College. And tonight we're discussing her newest book, uh, The Awakening of Muslim Democracy, Religion, Modernity, and the State, from, also from Cambridge University. I did a little bit of peeking around online, and the book has been um, received and discussed and, and noted in, in many environments. I believe there have been several discussions already at Harvard, the Kennedy School, and the South Asia Institute, and I think we'll have a different take on it tonight. But uh, Roger Owen, an emeritus professor at the university here, said, this is an indispensable guide to the understanding of political Islam by one of Europe's leading analysts. It is theoretically sophisticated, answering all the big questions. Nathan Brown at George Washington University says Jocelyn Cesare not only combines historically rich analysis with admirable geographical breadth and coverage of recent events, she also forces us to view familiar questions through very new lenses. Rather than approaching political Islam through the prism of social movements and opposition, her starting point is the state and formal institutions. But that is not always her ending point. She shows us how and why democracy, as it emerges, if it emerges, is often likely to take some unfamiliar forms in political systems in which political Islam is deeply entrenched. And I could go on to quote other, other scholars who have praised this book in advance. And so I think we're very, uh, it's such a timely book. Um, the issues in the book are in the news. Uh, the issues in the news are uncertain where things will go. And I think we have one of the best scholars possible to, to discuss these matters with us tonight. So 10 or 15 minutes now, Jocelyn will talk about her book, how it came to be, what's key to it. And then I'll introduce our two discussants for the book. So let us welcome Jocelyn Cesari. Thank you very much. And I will pass the book around. Just keep it moving so it doesn't get lost somewhere. Thank you for coming tonight, and thank you to Francis, uh, Franks, <laughs> and and uh, the Center for the Study of World Religion for. Uh, giving me the opportunity actually to, to discuss the results of this book to a deep, toward a different audience. Usually most, most of my interaction on the book have been with people in uh, political science, international relations, and I'm also looking for exchanges with people who have a greater sensibility toward a sensitivity toward religion and religious studies. Uh, to follow the suggestions um, of uh, Frank, I would like to talk about the context in which the book came out, uh, at least the project of the book. As you may have uh, heard through uh, the presentation uh, of my different uh, research, I am first and foremost a scholar of religion and politics. Um, and I have been interested in the way that religion becomes entangled with politics and the other way around. Um, lots of my work has been on the question of Muslims in Europe, in the US. And while I was working on the book Why the West Fair Islam, um, because of the globalization of the question on, on legitimacy of Islam, 
uh, what is the true Islam that Muslims are facing in the West uh, and the influence of um, global trends of Islamic interpretation, most of them rooted in Muslim countries, I also had to take into account the debates about Islam in Muslim-majority countries. Um, and then um, I was also trying to do, which is still a work in progress, uh, bridging uh, a wealth of literature on religion from the social sciences uh, with a very, uh, I would say, a limited approach of religion and politics coming from the discipline in which I uh, belong, which is political science. Uh, in other words, you have a lot of discussion uh, by political scientists, especially in the American academia, that um, doesn't take into account the most recent advancement on what is secularism, what is religion, what is politicization of religion. Um, and I thought that this would be the good time to bridge the two. And then I was uh, thinking of this project when the um, 2011 revolutions in Tunisia and Egypt happened. And in some way, the, the interpretation of the perception of these mass protests, as I put this picture here, were pretty much encapsulating or reflecting the dilemma in which the political scientists are today, and I would say the media in general. When this happened, I don't know if you recall, because since then we had a lot of very terrible events, but there was a lot of enthusiasm uh, from my colleagues, but also from the media saying, haha, this is it. This is a, a secular democracy, a democratization of protests that should lead to a more kind of liberal regime. Because why? Because these young people that actually could also riot in the street of Paris or Berlin or, um, or London, they do not wear a kind of specific, you know, identifiable Islamic dressing. They um, do not have a board saying, you know, Islam is the solution or Islam is what we need. So there was this idea that finally the Arab world, more specifically in this case, was reaching this level of what's called the fourth wave of democratization, where uh, Islam was put on the side and moving on toward uh, a greater political modernization. And since this episode, we have been going up and down, what I call the roller coaster, when the Islamic parties won the election. There was this setback, oh, finally, no, maybe not, you know, maybe really there is something about Islam here that prevents any kind of political change. And as you know, we are now in the middle of the ISIS crisis that uh, has put back the debate even further, uh, actually, in terms of the so-called compatibility of Islam and democracy. I mean, having lived in multiple uh, Muslim countries but, and also in the West among different Muslim communities, I can tell you that this kind of uh, public appearance doesn't say anything <laughs> about the level of Islamic identification or belonging or belief of the people, not at all. So there is something here that I wanted to connect with um, a taken-for-granted approach of secularism that is dominant in political science, 
uh, and that um, is, you know, uh, if you ask anybody, and is this uh, even the, the educated citizen uh, or the journalist, he will tell you that secularism needs, requires at least the separation of state and religion, the privatization of religion, meaning religious groups tend to set back from social interaction and the decline of individual religiosity. More or less, you're going to find these three dimensions. No, again, this is not only a sort of educated discourse. These are the three parameters in which political scientists today are measuring the level of secularism of any country outside the West. And the problem is none, none of these three dimensions exist in any country outside uh, in any country that, that could define themselves as secular democracy. Take the US. Yes, there is separation of church and state. I'm not sure that there is a privatization of religion. And I'm not sure that there is a decline of individual religiosity. But America is a secular country, right? Take Europe. It's the opposite. In Europe, despite what everybody thinks, there is no, even France, I do not consider France as a country that separates religion and state. It is kind of interactions between state and religion that guarantee some freedom for believers. I don't want to get too many, into many details. Even the privatization is not so obvious. Even Jürgen Habermas recently has reopened a debate about the role of religion in public space related to the current, you know, succession of controversies and the visibility of Islam in public space. And what is very strong in Europe is the decline of individual religiosity. Take India. India is considered a secular democracy. None of these parameters work for India, none of those. So what are we talking about? And again, this is not for me. If it was a scholarly problem, I would say, okay, okay, after all, why should... But this is a political problem. <laughs> this is the way that people are sent in this area from states to fight for democratization and secularization. And that's where I have an issue here as a citizen. And as a human being, too. I mean, we cannot continue working and producing work that has nothing to do with the reality of people. And if we do not acknowledge this right now, we are in, and that's my trouble here, or worry, we are in for a long, long journey of not only misunderstanding, but political tension that are not going to go away. So, um, interestingly, if you look at the sociologist of religion, one of my colleagues at the Berkeley Center, Jose Casanova, that non-political scientist use, <laughs> he wrote a book called uh, The Religion in Public Space, and he said, you do not need a privatization of religion to move toward democratization. Actually, I can show you, and he used lots of Latin American examples because Catholicism is his work, um, I can show you that there is a visibility, a presence of religious institution and group in society and in public space, and that religious groups and voices are far from being removed from the public space. At the same time, this country has reached a certain level 
of secularity. So the whole debate here is, is, is actually, you can agree that secularism is an ideology. It is not a concept. It is an ideology. And it's the ideology of the Western experience. Even here, I'm making a big generalization because Europe and America obviously have a very different trajectory toward that. But it is the ideology of the Western experience toward what I would call, if you really want to have a normative approach, which might, again, if you don't have one in political science, you're in trouble. So you, you could look, and there is also work done by people like Alfred Stepan in looking at how do you treat equally, from the state point of view, all religion. This is, for example, the conundrum or, or challenge of India. India, the state, tried to be equidistant from all religion. Doesn't mean that it works all the time, but that's the ideal, that's the norm, so to speak. And at the same time, how do you protect the rights of individuals, including freedom of speech, but also religious conviction? And these, these take different forms and certainly not, are not implemented in any of the three dimensions that I, that I uh, refer to. So I was working on that, and this fit nicely. You know, these young people, oh, they don't wear Islamic dress, so they are not. There is no privatization of religion in Muslim countries. Not because of Islam. But be, and there is no real decline of individual religiosity. And obviously there is no separation of state and religion. So what does it mean for the political evolution of, um, of Islam? And what does it mean for political Islam? Before I respond to the question, the other element that I try to bring into this debate related to the Arab awakening and post-Arab uh, awakening is also uh, what I call a new... I don't know what's happening here, but... Um, a new approach to religion. Again, this is not my approach. Uh, it is something that sociologists of religion and anthropologists of religion have, yeah, it is, um, have developed. At the same time that you have this, you know, critique or, re, or, or um, uh, distanciation before what was considered the theory of secularism. Um, and this again started um, 20 years ago, and it's still ongoing because you, what you have also is uh, scholars from India, for example, or other areas coming into the debate and bringing new conceptions uh, to, to this uh, uh, necessity to go beyond the separation, the privatization and decline of personal religiosity. You have at the same time an effort done by most anthropologists and a few sociologists about deconstructing the con, con I mean, there is no concept of religion. It's, there is one thing that you as scholars of religion know is that there is no uh, consensus on any definition. So what are we observing? What are we studying when we study about religion? And here uh, you have the work of people like Talal Assad, that has shown that what we consider religion today that also permeates the, the discourse on religion and politics outside the West is actually a, a, a cre a, the crystallization of the uh, experience of Christianity in uh, Western Europe. 
And again, this will come as an issue not only for studying uh, Islam, but also studying Hinduism, Buddhism, and you have a lots of work that I showed, for example, that uh, the discussion of the current controversies or debates on Hinduism are very much influenced by the exportation of this concept of religion by the colonial power everywhere. So what I try to do in this book is to show how this exportation of the concept of religion based on the um, uh, Western Christian experience that, that focus on belief. If I ask, and I do this all the time, what is religion for you? 90% of people will tell you it's about my belief, my intimacy, my, something that is private related to what I believe. The problem is, for 90% of the work, religion is not only belief. And that's why I bring in the work of someone else that I like very much, which is Grace Davy. That, that she say we should broaden up when we investigate about religiosity beyond the belief and look at what people belong to and also how do they behave. And then you have the three Bs. The problem is that the three Bs are taken into account in some kind of you know, sociological work, but they have been ossified. And there is this idea coming from the West that you know, the belief is a sort of cognitive uh, dimension that will influence the way you belong and the way you behave. What sociological work of Grace Davies show is actually you have a disjunction of the three Bs. People will believe, not automatically behave or belong, or they will behave and not automatically believe, or they will belong and not, not believe or behave. Uh, to give you an, but they will all say, I am Catholic, I am Jewish, I am Muslim. So Muslims are doing exactly the same thing. <laughs> So what are, we, what, do, what are we measuring when people are saying that? And if we just look at the belief and what my discipline does particularly, if we look at the theological discourse, we're not going to go very far in understanding what people are saying when they say we are Muslim. Uh, so once I have that, what do I do with this? <laughs> um, and that's why I wanted you to see the Tijani Merkin because he's doing a very, very mundane work, which is to sell things on the street of... But this is religious work. This is, this is a sign of his behaving and belonging to a certain Sufi group. And he's not going to give you theological discussion. He's not going to cite any text. And that's a problem. I'm not saying that the text doesn't count, but my problem with the people in political science is they take at face value what's in the text. You know, and, and it's a very strong essentialization of the text. Well, I keep saying to my students, no text without context. It's easy, easily said. It's much difficult to operationalize this into um, observation of what is the role of religion in politics. So that's where um, I uh, decided to go back to... Uh, Um, to a moment, what I call the foundational moment, where the, what, this modern vision of religion will uh, be implemented in Muslim countries. 
So the turning point, as I show in the book, is the end of the Ottoman Empire and the exportation of the, uh, the, the exportation started before with the colonial power of the nation state. The nation state is not a Muslim con concept. It's not, it's a Western concept. We, we like it, we don't like it. That's the situation it is. So what I did in my work was to show the diffusion of this concept in the Muslim areas and how being diffused, it is not duplicated as it was in the West. Um, there is a very nice theory I like, you know, that, that show actually that they call this the grafting, the pruning of the concept out of the initial areas. And, and my, my, um, my, my thesis is to say that political Islam is the result of the grafting and pruning of the nation state in Muslim land after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. So I go back to the, and what most of the literature that I'm trying to go up in, <laughs> just look at Islam, political Islam as Islamic movement opposing a so-called secular state. So I had to say, you know, the state is not secular. So I had to go back to the building of the nation state. And one turning moment was when I, I worked uh, a year in the Iraqi archives of, uh, you know that the US military took the whole archives of the Saddam uh, regime. And I, look, I was looking at the way that the authoritarian state was dealing with religion. You could not do more secular, atheist, cynical about religion than the Saddam regime. Right? Religion is everywhere, and it is not only instrumentalized, it's not only in the discourse, because usually when we look at the way that politics is using religion, it's all about the politics, you know, reference to the Quran, reference to the jihad. No, it, was, it is inscribed in the national institution, and it meant that the, the, the breaking point was that the traditional religious establishment, so I didn't look at the theology only, I looked at very physical mark of religion, the endowments, the school, the body of the clerics, all these that were independent, unlike what people think in the Ottoman Empire. Of course, the caliph could consult the ulema, but they were not paid by the caliph. Their uh, building were not maintained and controlled by the caliph. Uh, Training was not controlled by the state. A breaking point happened here, where all this independence disappeared, and all these elements, the foundations, the madrasas, the institutions, the people, the clerics, they became civil servants. If this is not political Islam, I do not know then what it is. It is exactly, to go quick here, connecting the national belonging with the religious belonging in a way that didn't exist before. Of course, it has nothing to do with the belief. That's why the state can say, playing on the misunderstanding with the way, oh, well, we don't do theology. No, you don't do, because if you just look at belief, but you did something, which is creating this connection between the religious belonging and the national belonging. Even in a country like Turkey, Turkey is a ma magnificent case in point because you can say, yes, Turkey was secular, you know. He, he removed Islam from the, private, from the public space. He did the privatization. He didn't separate. Actually, there was no separation. Of, he did the opposite of the Ottoman Empire. He nationalized the Hanafi school. He nationalized the places of worship. 
And he didn't do this for all other religions. Why he didn't do that for Alevi or for uh, uh, Shia? No, he nationalized the, do the, the majority, the, the school of the dominant group of, of the country. So this is where the intolerance starts because you create a specific connection be between being a citizen and being a Muslim that didn't exist before. As I keep saying, if I were Greek Orthodox in Istanbul at the time of the Ottoman Empire, I am part of the Ummah, unlike what Isis is saying. Because the Ummah is a historical, is all the lands under which the Caliph has authority, and it was a multicultural, multi-religious, multilingual political, uh, uh, political system. And this is gone. And this is the state. This is not a bond of, uh, you know, backward theology. These are, this is a consequence of the diffusion of the nation state in, in this area. And this was deliberately done by secular westernized elite. Uh, so based on that, you can read political Islam as a, uh, the protest based on Islam uh, that will lead to Islamic parties, to Islamic movement, is an amplification in some way of this, uh, of this base that is not criticized anywhere. Nobody has criticized that. And it's interesting because the post, uh, after the revolution, what you see is that actually nobody will contest the connection between being a Muslim and being a national. I didn't hear any strong debate about the status of Copt in, in Egypt, not only by Islamists, but even by the so-called secular. Didn't hear anything about the, uh, la, the, um, introducing the religious group into the protection, the fold of the state. Like the, nobody said anything, even the so-called secular and liberals. The only country that have moved towards that is Tunisia, which is an interesting experiment. I should stop, right? I have uh... a couple of minutes because we only have So what does it mean once you have what I call the hegemonic Islam, which again is not the established religion and is not the dominant religion. It's really connecting uh, the religious belonging to a certain trend of Islam with the national uh, institution. Then it does have consequences on um, on the way it does politicize religion in a way that didn't exist before. And it put a complete uh, focus on the uh, behaving of believers and being also citizens. The two become connected. And you hear this in the discourse of Isis. Isis tried to create a an ideal political community where the good citizen is also a good Muslim. Not too much on the believing, but how he behaves how he, he appears in public space. And so this is another uh, amplification. Um, another consequence is on democracy. Uh, we have done a work with another colleague that has a huge database on state-religion relations, and actually hegemonic Islam work also for other religions and shows the politicization. To give you an example outside Islam, Buddhism in Sri Lanka, is a very good example of an hegemonic religion, where you have this fusion between being uh, from a national, a national and being a Buddhist. And that's why you have um, monks who are warrior monks, like you have jihadi. I give this uh, to my students to read. You remove jihad, you, you, they thought they were jihadi texts. 
this was the monk. And again, we have this vision that Buddhism is all, you know, pacifist. And so what, what is at stake here? Um, and I want to finish on that. So the point I'm trying to make is that you cannot limit your approach to religion to the text and to what the cleric are saying that you have to look at the sites of contestation where different actors, including state actors, are coming in to define what is the true, the right, the good way of being a believer and what does it mean politically. It means also that this is a more methodological approach, but you, you, you have to do history. People are not... Indiv they are not, uh, I would say, reinventing everything. We tend to forget that there is a memory of how you were, what it means. You know, I'm, I'm saying here big evidence, but uh, big, uh, this sounds obvious, but it is not obvious when you look only at simple causation, like we do in social science most of the time. I think we have to, to move away from the stark opposition between secular and religious, that is permeating the lots of work, and see, see it as a continuous interaction or a continuous social mechanism. Um, and it's hard in terms of, of methodology. How do you make this happen uh, and, and make this significant? Um, and the big radical piece of it is how we de-westernize social science. And it's beyond, this is beyond my own, I cannot do this, I mean, this is, but, but this is a, the major resistance is here. We keep applying theories that do not work. Uh, for how long? I mean, uh, maybe you have a response to that. Thank you. Thank you very much for giving us an overview of the book, and the book should have made its way around by now. So I think everybody can be preparing questions and comments for a few minutes. But first, we have uh, <coughs> two very distinguished um, commentators, discussants for the book, and I'll introduce them both. Uh, first will come up uh, Professor Leah Greenfeld, who uh, has been a professor, university professor at Boston University, and is currently professor of sociology, political science, and anthropology. Uh, she is also a distinguished adjunct professor at Lingnan University in Hong Kong, where she usually spends a month a year. And a while back, she was also here at Harvard for some time. She was the uh, assistant professor and then John L. Loeb, associate professor of social sciences here at Harvard. So it's good to have you back on this side of the river. Um, uh, professor Greenfield is widely published on questions of art, economics, history, language, and literature, philosophy, politics, religion, and science. She has studied the cultures of England and Britain, France and Germany, and a range of other countries, including Israel and the United States. Her many books include, just to mention a few of them, Center, Ideas and Institutions. She's an editor of that in 1988. A year later, Different Worlds, a study in the sociology of taste, choice, and Success in Art, 2006, Nationalism in the Mind, Essays on Modern Culture, 2012, The Ideals of Joseph Ben David, The Scientist's Role in Centers of Learning Revisited, another edited volume, but perhaps is best known for her trilogy of books, uh, 1992, Nationalism, Five Roads to Modernity, 
established her as a prominent authority on the very notion of nationalism. In 2001, a book that won the Kagan Best Book in European History, uh, The Spirit of Capitalism, Nationalism and Economic Growth, and um, the third volume of her trilogy is Mind, Modernity, and Madness, The Impact of Culture on Human Experience, Harvard University Press, uh, 2013. It is an honor to react to this very, very fine book. Um, in her research, Rosalind Cesari discovered that what appears on the surface and is considered by most observers as the influence of Islam on politics, or as specifically Muslim politics, is in fact a result of the process of secularization, which has been affecting the Muslim world as it has the Christian world as a core element of the replacement of an essentially religious identity and consciousness by the national identity and consciousness, which is essentially secular, even when it borrows values and ideas from religion and uses religion for its secular ends. Nationalism is a form of consciousness focused on this empirical world, which it considers meaningful in its own right, and based on the twin principles of fundamental equality of members in the political community and the sovereignty of this community. Societies organized in accordance with these principles are called nations. This consciousness emerged in the 16th century in England, started spreading beyond its birthplace in the 18th century, with the 19th and early 20th centuries being the time when it spread throughout the monotheistic world, reaching most Christian as well as Muslim societies, which began then redefining themselves as nations. This is what Professor Cesare said now too. Everywhere, nationalism first reached small elite groups who were later able to influence the rest of their native populations with variable degrees of success. Envisioning the political community as a community of equals and a sovereign meant envisioning it as a democracy. Thus, the spread of nationalism implied democratization. Nationalism, national consciousness, became the cultural framework of modernity. That is the framework of the image in which social reality was made. Thus, the spread of nationalism implied modernization. The essential focus on this, of nationalism on this world, instead of on the transcendental realm of God, which is what made nationalists politically activists, obviously implied secularization. Missing the derivation of all these processes from a changed image of reality, missing, that is, their underlying causation by nationalism, led political scientists, and here I would disagree with uh, Professor Cesare and the rest of the social scientists too, 
led political scientists and the, red of the, the rest of the social scientists, sociologists, certainly included among them, to ascribe primary causal role to one or another of these implications of nationalism themselves. And since the process we have been most concerned to explain was democratization, spreading democracy, heading the American political agenda from the day the United States was formed as a nation and being an integral element of the American national consciousness, many political scientists and policymakers whom they influenced attributed democratization to modernization and secularization. This from the political science point of view, which was based on insufficient knowledge of, in the first place, European history and mistaken, made Islamic democracy a contradiction in terms. Jocelyn Cesari has shown that it is not that in fact the nation-building travails of Muslim societies is no different from the nation-building travails of Christian societies. Many Christian societies integrated their religious heritage into their specific nationalisms, adapting and harnessing it to their fundamentally secular national goals and often transforming it into an ethnic characteristic. Think about the not-so-remote example of Yugoslavia, torn by the struggle of competing ethnic nationalisms presented under religious garb. Or think about Poland, Ireland, or Greece. In fact, there is no Western nationalism that developed in a Christian community be it the original English nationalism in the 16th and 17th centuries, the French, the American, or the Russian nationalisms in the 18th century, or any of the later developments that did not involve the use of religion as a tool of secular political struggles, which, as a result, often looked as religious conflicts in their course redefining, adapting, and bringing religion down to earth, therefore secularizing religion. Such harnessing religion to the nationalist agenda, which is itself secular, necessarily changes the nature both of religious experience and of religious influence. Nationalism is inherently competitive, which means that national identity generates desire for superiority, which thwarted leads to aggression. And ethnic nationalism, based as it is on such thwarted desire from the very beginning, and therefore motivated by ressentiment or existential envy. As we know very well from the example of the National Socialist Germany, which was an explicitly secular regime, do not need any religious support to be aggressive without provocation and horrifically violent.
When such nationalisms do rely on religion for ideology and mass mobilization, collective action is still directed by the political, secular goals of nationalism, religious influence being largely limited to the secondary issues of style rather than content and tactics rather than strategy. And it is indeed nationalism with its political, secular goals that determines which parts or interpretations of the religious doctrine are utilized. Another similarity between nation building in Muslim and in Christian society is the active role secular state plays in this process. The state is an implication of the national view of reality. The concept which emerges as the name for the government about 50 years after nationalism has emerged means abstract authority. And government organized as the state embodies the principle of popular sovereignty which is a core principle of nationalism. It is an impersonal form of government which distinguishes it from personal forms of government such as kingship. And by definition, the state is representative government. It represents the sovereignty of the nation. Of course, the national principle of popular sovereignty can be implemented in different ways. When the nation itself is conceived of as an association of individuals, that is when we say, we the people, it leads to the establishment of representative institutions which safeguard individual political rights. When the nation is seen as a collective individual which is much more common, it is as likely to favor the emergence of authoritarian rule by the elite of virtue or intelligence, as happened in the first case for a prominent example in the revolutionary France. And this elite of virtue or intelligence has the ability to divine the general will of the nation. When membership in the nation is defined in ethnic terms, the nation is necessarily defined as a collective individual, with popular sovereignty implemented not simply in authoritarian, but very often in dictatorial regimes. Europe provides numerous examples of nationalist dictatorships in which both the people and the dictator, a Robespierre or a Hitler, firmly believe that the dictator represents the will of the nation. Both in France and in Germany, where national consciousness was already widespread, these dictatorships embodying popular sovereignty were militantly secular. In the Middle East, where only small, 
usually Western-educated elites have developed such consciousness, national dictators commonly relied on and, in a Caesaropapist fashion, patronized the majority religion, Islam. But clearly, it was not Islam that shaped the political nature of their regimes. Jocelyne Cesari emphasized the role of the secular state in integrating Islam in the national politics. In doing so, she highlighted the flawed character of the idea of secularization dominant in political science and in the social sciences generally. This idea, believed to be based on Western experience, which lumps together the vastly different experiences of various American and European societies, as if they constituted an undifferentiated entity, is in fact unhistorical. It does not reflect any experience, and as such, it is singularly inarticulate and unhelpful. The concept, which is nothing but the literal interpretation of the word's etymology, and is based on a binary, essentialist opposition of religion and secularism, presumes a mechanical substitution of anything religious by its secular antithesis. So religious thinking is replaced by antithetical secular thinking, religious laws by antithetical secular laws, etc. While it is also assumed that in all cases of such substitution, a plus sign replaces the minus sign. Secularization ushering in democracy and modernity and religion standing for oppression and backwardness. But this is never what happens. What happens is that the place of the sacred, of what gives people's lives meaning, changes. In fact, secularization means the sacralization of the secular, bringing the sacred to this earth, investing this world with religious qualities. The secular, instead of the transcendental, becomes the sphere of religious experience. The object of the state, that is of political leaders, animated by national consciousness, is to assure among their populations the same zeal, the same commitment to the nation that they previously had to God. And if the only means available to them for achieving this are religious means, they will secularize with the help of religion. Nationalism, which has by now become a global force, implies secularization in this sense 
as it also implies democratization. But different types of nationalism imply different democracies. The rarest of all, liberal democracy, emerged together with individualistic and civic nationalism, such as the British and American, and sometimes corresponds to collectivistic and civic nationalism, such as the French and the Israeli ones. Though, for example, the collectivistic and civic nationalisms in Latin America have historically tended towards authoritarianism. In contrast, collectivistic ethnic nationalism, which is by far the most common type, consistently produces authoritarian and even totalitarian democracies, usually referred to as socialist or popular democracies as in the Nazi social, the National Socialist Germany or Russia in its various permutations. There are no pure types of nationalism and in each concrete case, representing the type whose characteristics predominate in the national consciousness, it is possible to discover elements of other types. Nevertheless, the type of nationalism remains the best predictor of the aims and policies of the entity in question. And it is this that we should try to analyze underneath the religious rhetoric of Islamic societies and movements. If we want to understand, for example, why Arab Spring, instead of creating a picture-perfect Middle Eastern Switzerland, which Western observers confidently expected on the basis of their unworldly notions of democratization, secularization, and modernization, produced the poisonous flowers of ISIS, Boko Haram, and other movements of their ilk. It is not Islam as such that oriented these movements towards particular interpretations of the doctrine that have existed for centuries and for centuries were eclipsed by other interpretations. What I see as the central achievement of Jocelyn Cesari, besides revealing to us the dynamics of complex secularization and democratization processes in several core Islamic societies, is that she refused to be swayed by ruling disciplinary dogmas, that discovering that her empirical research contradicted theoretical constructs, she refused to adjust her findings to these constructs, as so many do, and questioned the dominant theory. She showed us that Islamic societies are far less different from those we vaguely call Western, that they do not represent another civilization destined to clash with ours. In a way, she held up to us a mirror. Thank you.
I, even that Senegal, Indonesia, or even Lebanon, that could have came as an afterthought, is that they do not belong in the framework I'm trying to define. They are not characterized by hegemonic Islam, in the sense that uh, Senegal doesn't have Islam as a religion of the state of the nation, that Indonesia tried to adopt an equivalent of the Indian uh, experiment, which is the Pancasila Agreement, where Indonesia tried to treat all religion uh, in the same way. So they don't belong in the, um, in, in the demonstration I'm trying to make about hegemonic Islam, which is the opposite. And actually, I claim that what I say about hegemonic Islam is representative of the majority. This, we just finished a work that will be published that shows that out of the case of Senegal, Indonesia, Lebanon, which is a sectarian democracy, and now Tunisia, all Muslim countries are defined by hegemonic Islam. So, um, so this I am pretty confident, and again, because numbers count in this, you know, not for me, but to make the point, uh, it is pretty representative of Egypt, but not Senegal and not Indonesia. But in this particular case, I do not think, I never said that they are imperfect democracy. What I tried to show that I could not present is actually, they are what I, what I call unsecular democracy which is an awful term, uh, Jose Casanova, I hate this term, he said, what does this mean? Actually, I'm not, I didn't create the term. Calivas wrote a, a comparison between a Catholic state and Muslim state. And the idea of unsecular democracy, so it's not specific to, to Muslim or to Senegal or Indonesia. You can add Argentina, Chile, you can even discuss America as an unsecular democracy. It's about the mobilization in public space of religious theme, topic, and the attempt to change legislation based on this motivation. It has nothing to do being imperfect, but it is about, you know, indeed limiting same-sex marriage, about the right to abortion contraception. To my knowledge, this is not specific to Senegal and Indonesia. You have it in the U.S., you have it in Latin American countries, you have it in Poland. So it is not... Uh, about imperfection. It's about, this unsecular is about what I call the right of the self. It's not individual rights in terms of political rights, economic rights. It's about what do I do with my body and how much of my person is subservient to the collective. These are questions that are not specific to Muslim countries. But I don't have time. I mean, okay. I will stop here. Okay, so we have a bit of time. And there's the first question. Yes, sir. Um, thank you, Professor Cesar, for your speech and for the book. I mean, it's a fascinating book. And as a Turkish legal scholar, I agree with every single word of you on the on Turkey in the book. Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, you give much more complete and realistic picture. Uh, more than many insiders, more than many Turkish scholars. Um, I mean, you list the problems for minor, religious minorities in Turkey, which I also agree, and I, I, I believe it's a reflection of laicism. Um, but you also say, I mean, uh, it's also correct, the Sunni identities uh, apparent in every, like not, not everywhere, but in many places in Turkey, especially in the education system. 
But I, um, so people think Islam is favored in Turkey uh, all the time uh, because of the current government and the current policies. I don't think so. And I know you know the, 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 the circumstances during the revolution, during the, the founding period uh, of the Turkish Republic. Um, um, and uh, I mean, Hatsikarf is the only one, but there were many problems um, for the majority religion and for, for, for Sunni Muslim majority. So uh, do you think the problems only occur for, I mean, in, in Turkey, only, only occur for, for uh, minority religions, this suppression uh, and this dilemma? So, I mean, uh, is, I mean I, because I don't see that much you touched to majority religions problem and the suppression on majority religion. So, I mean, do you think it majority religion uh, or people from majority religions had no problems and they haven't suffered? Um, or, I mean, maybe, I mean, yeah, if you can. Can I respond to that? Uh, yeah. yeah, this is a very important point that I, uh, this is the one I have not really developed and you're absolutely right on that. Um, it, it, what you are pointing out is what you can call what happened in, in Turkey and in all these countries is what you could call, you, using the reference of European experience, the confessionalization of Islam. In the sense that Islam became, like, like uh, Leah explained, you know, like there is a strong parallel with what happened to Christianity in the nation state building and how the state when a religion becomes a confession, and the term is not so much used in the, but in Europe it's pretty, so it means that it did indeed have a consequence on how you act as a believer. There are things you cannot do in the same way that you are doing before, you know, and, and it, it, it weighs heavily on the way that uh, Muslims have to adjust to this confession of Islam with the Dayanet and you know all that, you're absolutely right. Um, but I don't, I don't make use a lot. Uh, my, my, yeah, this is a piece that is not really. Subst I, I mentioned it briefly in the conclusion, but I'm not really pushing on that. But you're right. Yes. Thank you very much. Um, I'm. Um, uh, I'm a Christian. I was born and raised in Turkey, so I have a slightly different view about some of the stuff you've talked about. Um, I just want to mention a couple of things. One is that you talked about secularism, and you talked about the separation of state and religion, and then you gave the example of the U.S. So um, I, would, I would argue that as somebody uh, who has lived through a couple of elections and how the presidents are sworn in and what the... Uh, the the dollar bill says uh, there isn't much of a separation of religion and state in this country. Having said that, I don't find any, any issues with that because I don't see, you know, I've lived in enough countries that I don't, I, I think the concept of separating religion from everyday life is basically um, not a very realistic approach. I've lived in uh, Switzerland, I've lived in France, so I just wanted to point that out. The concept of the, uh, the minority religions in, under the Ottoman rule, that was one of extreme taxation without representation. So anything that came after that, what Atatürk did, was, was something that was very much welcome by the minorities. I, I, I do need to point that out. As to what's happening in Turkey now, um, 
I think my, my friend was asking you the question about have the majority, has the majority uh, uh, religion been suppressed? And the answer is yes. For the last 80 years, the majority religion in Turkey was suppressed. And this is, we're seeing the reaction of that now. Now, you need to uh, realize that it's not something that happened just overnight. It's not something that Ataturk just came up with or anything. It was just a development of the, of the nation-state process. Maybe certain things were changed. But um, to, to, you know, to say that religion... Uh, you know, to say that the idea of laicism, as we, we talk about in Turkey, laicism, as in, in France, or secularism exists in reality, um, is, as we know it in the books, I think is a little bit far-fetched. And I wonder if you could comment on that as to how we can come up with a society where we are comfortable with our religiosity, whether it's, Christi- whether it's Christianity, whether it's Islam, and it's okay to talk about it in public, and it's okay to uh, bring it into the secular um, without being criticized either way. Do you have an answer for that? Oh, yes, I have a tons of answers. Okay, thank First, you. First, I think, um, and that's what also I try to do in the book, I think we have to distinguish state, uh, religion, relations, which is the institutional level of secularization from the religion and politics level, which is the social level. And what you are referring to in the US about God bless America, about references, it has nothing to do with the institutional level. It has to do with the legitimacy of religion in social life, what Tocqueville uh, marveled on when he came in the 19th century. But in terms of institution, you cannot say that the U.S. found privileged institutionally. I'm not talking about politicians acting on religious belief or, or you know, having to show some kind of religious background when they, when they uh, compete for election. But institutionally, the, uh, this is pretty clear. The U.S. is the only country that separates state from religious organization, period. This is it. But it doesn't mean that it's secular at the social level. You take France, it's the opposite. You can say, but this I would argue that French is separate religion and, and state, which I would argue because it's not completely true uh, legally and institutionally. But at the social level, it's the opposite. French has removed as much possible references of religion in public space, and that's what Kamala Taturk did. But it doesn't mean that Kemal Ataturk really, imp- uh, this is what I, this is what I'm surprised you say, secular, I, that's what I say, secularism doesn't exist in Turkey because there is no recognition of all other religious groups, never been. And um, I am pretty, I have a more critical approach on the status of minorities, you know. I would say that a religious minority in Turkey is a second class citizen while uh, you cannot compare with the status of Dimmi, because it was not a nation state. Would you compare the status of Jews in uh, European medieval Christianity? Like, I mean, again, if you look at the status of what was the status of religious minority in Muslim countries versus uh, Christian countries, you, you are in for a big difference in the sense that the minorities were more well-treated 
in Muslim empires than they were in medieval. That's, what, that's the comparison you have to make. You cannot compare the status of dhimmi with the status of citizen. It is not the same thing. And I will stop here. So we will have plenty of time across the street at the reception for informal discussion. I think we probably have time for maybe one more question here, and then we can shift across the street for informal conversation. Thank you very much for this wonderful presentation. Uh, I'm Pavel Karolewski from a Polish university in Wroclaw. Um, you seem to make the argument that there is no difference of kind between the nexus between of religion and statehood in Europe, US, and uh, other countries. So there is nothing specific about Islam. And I was wondering uh, if there is a difference of degree with which you can explain differences, which are huge, of course. Right? I'm not an expert uh, on the matter, but uh, um, there is this collusion between Catholic Church and the statehood in Poland, in, of course, Ireland, uh, Croatia, and so on. But people don't get killed for apostasy, for instance. Right? So there not are differences. Any, uh, not anymore. Not anymore, exactly. So is it kind of, is your argument, is it, a, is it a degree of kind, or is it a kind of historical argument that there is a development to every religion, which would be a kind of uh, topos-orientated uh, argument? No. Um, that's, that's the problem here. I know that it can be read this way. That's why I made this reserve or caution. The point is not to say that there is a linear kind of you know, teleological evolution of things. I do not think so. Um, another kind of work would have shown that from what Leah described in, in terms of collusion between Christianity and state institution, from that after the war of religion, and the, but this work has been done, it's Charles Taylor, he showed that after the, the, the trauma of the war of religion on which each European have been raised, I mean, if you read the French book about, you know, the, the war between Protestants and Catholics, it's kind of a traumatic experience. Then you see the attempt by the state to disentangle this very privileged connection between one religious institution and the, the politics, you know. Cuius regio, ius religio. This is, and this is where Protestant can be citizen without being, you know, killed, okay? The evolution in Muslim countries is the opposite. That's what I try to show. Instead of the, the, this, the, the connection between Islam and the nation state building is until now. And this disentanglement didn't happen. I'm not saying it's not going to happen, but I'm saying it didn't happen. That's what it is. Between being a, a, a citizen and being a Muslim is there. It is there. And in, in some way, it was not present before the nation state. Yes. The connection be between being a citizen or member of the empire and being a Muslim. You could, again, I, I, I understand the object. You didn't have equality because it was not a democracy or a nation or, polit or secular system at the time, but neither Europe 
honestly, truly. You know, in Europe, you could be killed if you were a Protestant. In, 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 in the Ottoman Empire, you were Greek Orthodox, okay, you, you, you could never become a caliph and you were probably double taxed, but you could have a life, you know. You, you see? And that's, that's why you have to compare. When the nation state starts, this is an improvement for the condition of Protestant in some way. Uh, after the war, the, the war of re, uh, the religious war, not at the nation state building, but after the trauma of the war of religion, you can be Protestant and member of the French kingdom. While in, 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 in Muslim countries, it didn't happen. You became a national. Pakistan, for me, is a case in point. You are a national, a, na a legitimate national, if you are a Sunni of a certain obedience. Didn't, it's not the case in India. Look at the status of, of religious groups in India. And it's the same kind of Muslims across the border. So that's, that's the connection I am, I am addressing here, between being a, a, um, a believer and being a citizen. Yes, I actually would like to add to that and perhaps take a little different uh, tag from, from what you're saying. First of all, we uh, have to be much more um, articulate historically um, uh, when talking about uh, European countries or uh, what we call Western countries. Um, Yugoslavian horrific war did not happen that long ago. Uh, so uh, people were, children were, you know, put and closed in buildings and burned alive. And that, that really um, was happening in our world. But uh, more important perhaps, this is very important to keep in mind uh, the comparative perspective and be careful with this comparative perspective. There is not, no one West as a homogenous entity. There is no such thing. Um, but uh, uh, another thing, there are also no such secular trends, I mean such long-term trends um, as uh, uh, Jocelyn actually traces in, in the Muslim development also not in Western development. Uh, those, uh, the the um, use of religion by secular um, nations uh, goes, uh, it waxes and wanes. So, um, for example, in, in the Muslim world, the very same people, the very same groups who became um, uh, turned um, into leaders of radical Islam, radical Islamic movements, they were Marxists in their youth. The same happened in Iran. There is uh, really a, trans a personal transformation. The very people who were secular Marxists who considered religion the opiate of the masses. Then they turned into propagandists of radical Islam. Why? For a completely accidental and external reason of the fall of the Soviet Union. Communism 
disappeared and Marxism lost its cachet. And so there was no other ideology to, to, to fire this nationalist sentiment that, that Marxism very well expressed, this anti-Western envy, existential envy of the West. And now Islam was taken to do that. It's not because this motivation didn't come from Islam. It came from the secular interests that now could not be expressed through a different ideology. 